0: Got your Bibles. Open to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in the 27th chapter of Isaiah. You know, if you go to uh, most cultures in the world, what you're going to find, many of the cultures, you'll find that they all have stories from their past. They have stories. That have object lessons that teach on different things in almost every culture, at least I'd say probably at least 80% of the cultures in the world, have stories about dragons. Yes, scaly, fire breathing dragons are common in the mythology of our world. In China, a dragon is used as a symbol of the emperor. So if you've ever seen Chinese writing and pictures and you see a dragon, that is the emperor. Uh, we can find a knight and a dragon on the coat of arms of the city of Moscow and, and Russia. And in the national flag of Wales is a dragon. We've all heard of Nessie and Loch Ness. We've all heard of different stories and about dragons from our childhood where a knight would ride in to save the fair damsel who was stolen by the dragon and the the knight kills a dragon and takes, takes its gold and marries the damsel and everybody lives happily ever after. Yeah, <laughs> and many of us have, have either read or or saw the the uh, the Hobbit and one of the one of the famous dragons one of the famous dragon from that is Smog. That is Smog. Uh, Bilbo has to go and defeat the dragon to get back the gold. You know, even the Bible talks about dragons. And we're going to counter the dragon at the start, at the beginning of chapter 27 of Isaiah. So, let's begin there. Chapter 27, Isaiah verse 1. It says, in that day, and if you've been listening to any of the sermons or been here for the sermons, that's a very common phrase, we'll talk about that in a second. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. We we have encountered that term in that day, in that day, consistently in these these last few weeks especially. And what that is referenced is that is the day of the Lord. That is the day when God comes and and passes judgment on the world and punishes the world for all its sin, For its unrepentant sin and vindicates the faithful in Christ. And here in Isaiah, it actually gives us a, a name for that dragon. That dragon's name is Leviathan. Now, understand, I don't think in Scripture it talks about him being fire breathing or her, whatever it is, being fire breathing and so forth, but you get the idea. It is a dragon. It is a creature, a huge creature. Now, this is not the first and only place we find reference to Leviathan. Uh, We can find the beast also in the book of Job and in the book of Psalm. Now, I would suggest that you read those references in their context, which means reading more than just the verse. Read the whole chapter, and I would also suggest you read the whole book. But, needless to say... There are references in there. There are some who believe the Leviathan was an actual real sea creature. That Leviathan, and there was another reference to a a, a huge creature named Behemoth, that those creatures actually existed. We don't know that. We have no way of knowing for certain. Yes, I know there are bones out there, but um, those are all speculation as far as what all goes together and how they really looked and... um, if you look at, there's always that discussion of, well, how, if, if if the world is only, you know, if it's a young earth, where do the dinosaurs come from? Well, and how they get spread all over the world. Well, obviously the flood. But in, in reality, it, it, for today's verses, it really doesn't matter whether Leviathan is true or not, because actually, in chapter 27, it is being used as a symbol. Because Leviathan was a monster of chaos, a monster that would that uh, would would rage in the sea. Sailors were scared of Leviathan, of the sea, because it was an unknown. Leviathan is this idea of chaos. We also know that in Scripture that many times Satan himself is, is referenced as the dragon, especially if you go to Revelation, or the serpent. And obviously, where there is Satan, there is chaos. He loves chaos. As I've said from the start, that this all everything that's happened in the last two years is evil. It is because it has created nothing but chaos. And it continues to create chaos. Satan has his hands in it. He relishes it. He promotes it. But this Leviathan is this monster of chaos that has raged in our world since the fall in the garden. The city of man is established an evil that is worse than human. Leviathan as chaos. Chaos is worse than anything man himself can do. It's demonic. Isaiah sees this as this evil, I know, Jeff, you're going to freak out because it's like a snake, okay? Coiling, just... You know, right? And we were watching, we were watching a, a show on homesteading, and this guy reaches into the chicken box. And he says, boy, it feels soft. And then he starts pulling out, and there's this huge black snake in there, all coiled up. And black snakes bite, but they don't, it's not poisonous. But you can just imagine this breathing, kind of flowing idea. Chaos flows through our lives. It's all around us. It's the evil in this world. The ultimate enemy behind that is, is actually Satan himself, or Hasatan. If you know anything about um, the term Satan, Satan is not a, that's not a proper name. That is a job. Hasatan is the Satan, the accuser. That was his job. He was to accuse. He no longer accuses us in the throne room. He no longer has access. We know him by other names, as Beelzebub is one of them. And he goes throughout the world to war against the saints. He's like a roaring lion looking for someone who can, he can devour. Creating chaos wherever he goes. Where he and his henchmen, you might call them, go. And just as it takes a knight to defeat the dragon in our, our, our mythology, or in the case of, uh, case of the Hobbit, It takes a thief who can become invisible to to defeat smog. Only God himself, Yahweh, he is the only one, he is the mighty Lord. He is the only one strong enough and has a great sword that can overcome the evil earthly power of chaos, of Leviathan. And the symbolism there is so amazing as you think about it. If you if you go to Revelation, and you look at what the fact that you know that, that, that Christ comes back and he's got a double-edged sword. He has a sword out of his mouth. That's the word of God. It tells us it's the word of God. The only thing that can, can defeat, defeat Leviathan, that can defeat chaos, is God Himself with the word of God. In Daniel 7, if you go to Daniel 7, you'll see that there are four beasts that are described as coming from the sea. So the Leviathan is in the sea, but these beasts come out of the sea. And if you know anything about prophecy, anytime you see prophecy, you see the sea, it's always the people, the nations. So it sounds like the, you know, you hear this voice, and John hears this voice, it's like the sound of rushing waters so there's all these voices is what he hears so this idea that leviathan is in the sea is that the leviathan is amongst us he's he's amongst the people but da- daniel sees these these creatures that come up out of the sea they're coming to oppress the jews each one of them representing a different nation that's going to come we have the lion which was babylon you have the bear which is the medo persians the leopard which is greece which is alexander the great the large iron teeth and the one with large iron teeth and 10 horns that's the roman empire And the restored Roman Empire. And then Revelation 13 picks up this same imagery. 13 verses 1-2 to says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Again, the idea of of this this creature, this, this chaos that comes from humanity, from the nations. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, which are crowns, on his horns, and blasphemous names on his heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So what, what John is seeing here is he's seeing that this beast comes from all these other nations that Daniel had seen. Because he had all the attributes of all the other animals. And yet it is the dragon, the, is Satan himself, Beelzebub, who gives him power. And if you think... If you think Satan creates chaos, the beast will create even more. The beast will be a terrible world leader who organizes his people against the people of God. It will be the worst persecution that's ever happened. And I'm afraid we're going to see it in our lifetime. So in a sense, this Leviathan that is talked about in Isaiah is is all is these wicked empires of the world who will, in the end, set themselves against God. I was thinking about this this morning as I was was getting ready. I'm thinking about all the things that our society does. Little things that in reality we may think are innocuous, don't really matter. But then I started thinking about what happens when you get a piece of sand in your shoe. Or if you get a tiny little stone in your shoe. I don't know about you, but I have to stop and get that monster out of there because I think it's a rock. You know, I think it's this huge rock that's in there. It's just this tiny little thing. I'm like, how could that cause me so much pain? We let these little things into our society. Little things happen. And the problem is today we're letting it in the church too. Little things that seem no big deal. And yet it's going to destroy us Ultimately. The Antichrist, the beast, will set himself up against us and against his anointed ones, against God and his anointed. But as we see in Isaiah 27, God is going to defeat Leviathan. God is going to destroy chaos. We see a description of what Isaiah references in verse 1 in chapter 27 of, of Revelation. Actually, chapter 20 of Revelation, 20 verse 7 through 10. This is, what, this, is what is, this is kind of the actual thing happening with, God, with actually God destroying Leviathan. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, which would be Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the place where God actually defeats Leviathan. Defeats the dragon. Now granted, it is very symbolic. It is extremely symbolic but it will physically happen. Satan himself will be sent to the lake of fire. So think about this. What would happen what happens when, if all evil is gone? What happens when chaos is no more? Well, obviously, if there is no more chaos, then things would start to be good. Things would be amazing. And what we find here, going into verse 2, is we find out what happens. Once Leviathan's gone, the evil that has plagued the world is defeated, a vineyard begins to sprout. Verse 2, Isaiah 27. says, In that day a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I mean... I've had a pretty good harvest of some things. I'm not sure I've stood out there and sung about it, but we're supposed to sing of this pleasant vineyard. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it day, night, and day. I have no wrath. I love that line right there. See, God God takes care of his vineyard. I'm terrible at taking care of my my garden. I really am. I forget to water it. I should have watered it this morning. I should have watered my greenhouse this morning. Did I? No. So I go out and my beans are all dried up. And now I pay Abigail to water the rest of it because I'm like, I can't do it. I just can't remember to do it for some reason. I think it's because I've been canning and I'm tired of canning, I'm tired of weeding. But see, God doesn't. God takes care of it. He is the vine dresser. He's the one who takes care of everything. He waters it. He protects it. He no longer has wrath. He said, Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. <clears throat> or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. This is very interesting. Let me make peace with Let, let them make peace with me. He says it twice. Remember what happens? When we see something repeated in Scripture, remember we talked about peace last week, and if it's peace, peace, it's like perfect peace. God's saying, let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. What we have here is a song of a fruitful vineyard. This may be, um, last week we talked about the song that was sung throughout Judah. This may be that song. God acts powerfully in, in history, and the result is a fruitful vineyard. The day of the Lord doesn't only bring judgment, but it also brings abundance, fulfillment, fullness. If, if we go back to Genesis, we can see that God, what God has done, God has placed man in the garden, God created the garden. He caused all the plants to grow, but he puts man in the middle of it, He puts man in the garden to attend it, to be a steward of it, to help it grow. He didn't have to, at the time, think about this. he did not have to, man didn't have to weed. there were no weeds before the fall. The weeds are part of the curse. So what did he have to do? He had to pick it. He had to cultivate it. So man's job was to actually take care of the garden and not eat of one tree. But man fails. Because of man's unfaithfulness, what happens? The earth itself gets cursed. So when you're, when you're sitting there looking at the weeds in your garden, you have one person to blame. Adam. Because he knew better. I know, we want to blame Eve. Adam tried that, it didn't work. Genesis 3 verses 17 through 19 says, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now this doesn't mean this remember, some things are descriptive and some things are prescriptive. Meaning, if it's descriptive, it means it's talking about something that happened. If it's prescriptive, it means you're supposed to do it, supposed to follow it. This is descriptive, men, not prescriptive. You need to listen to your wife sometimes. Okay? Just want to make sure that's clear. So, listen to, the, you listen to the voice of your wife. You have eaten the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. Isn't it amazing? In my garden it seems the weeds grow better, grow better than the other plants. I built garden boxes and, do my, and put my, you know, my own dirt in it. I make special dirt for it so that the weeds don't grow because so I, I hate weeding, but weeds still grow because birds plant seeds, squirrels get in there, all kinds of stuff. And then I have some stuff that's on the ground, and the weeds are taller than my boxes now. It's part of the curse. But see, that's, that's not what's going to be. When, when God comes back, when, we, when God, on the day of the Lord, when God passes judgment, when Leviathan is destroyed, when chaos is gone, now it's God who's the keeper of the garden. Where man failed, God's going to succeed. God will provide for the vineyard with a continual outpouring of power and of grace for fruitfulness. At every moment, his vineyard will get exactly what it needs to produce fruit. Every moment. I like to watch, i sometimes watch my plants and I'll say, I know when they need water because they start to wilt. We won't wilt because God knows when we need water and he gives us what we need. We were, I was I think I've talked about my grapevine. I have a grapevine. I usually get about maybe five to six gallons of grapes from it. It needs watered whenever the grapes come on because the fruit needs to get, you know, needs to grow a little bit more. And I need to protect it from encroaching plants. This year we had to, I had all these ferns that kept growing, trying to grow into it. And I could, I mean, we had to cut a bunch of them out. And then I have black raspberries on the other side that are constantly reaching over and grabbing into grabbing. They they kind of tangle up together with each other it's like they're fighting. I have to constantly cut them back. And unfortunately, I have vermin that are coming in, and it's not the neighborhood kids. It's a possum that's coming into my vineyard, my vines, and eating my grapes. I have failed miserably at deterring him this year. I want to catch him sometime. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do with him. But see, where we fail, God succeeds. What I can't do, God does. See, you and I have a debt to pay. Sin—what sin is? Sin is like a debt that we've accumulated. Okay, and we do it throughout our lives. We, we continually sin. We, we sin and we sin. We're accumulating debt, and there's no way we can pay it back. It's impossible but there's one person who can and did. He took it all and he paid it. God, God's going to take care of it. He takes care of the vineyard. The struggle that I have with weeds and vermin it makes me mad. I get angry at myself every time I go by because I see all the places where there's missing Grapes. And just as in the past, God's wrath was active against humanity's sin, so he unleashed his judgment on Christ. But it says here, no more wrath. It's gone. And all that ends up remaining once God does this is the remnant of the faithful. But God's no longer angry. Later we're going to see how Isaiah, how tenderly God speaks to his people. He starts it here in, in Isaiah 40. This will be later and when, we, when we get to Isaiah 40. We're still on 27, so it's going to be a while. Maybe beginning of next year. In, in Isaiah 40, here's what he says. "Is comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort. Again, comfort twice. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Not double punishment, but double mercy. Double salvation. Double joy. God God is zealous to protect His people. He's zealous to protect us. That back here in Isaiah 27, He seems to be taunting evil. He says, if I, man, if I just had some weeds, man, if I just had some briars, I could take care of them. You know? If I could just have these, I, I could take care of this. He's taunting them. But see, he also says it would have been better though if the weeds had made peace with me. I, I wish, I wish I could make a deal with the squirrels. Okay? I have, I, gar- like I say, my garden boxes, and every year in the fall they plant their nuts in my garden. So what happens when I go to plant in the spring? I come out the next day and everything's dug up. Seriously, I have to put netting over, it, and sometimes that's not even enough. Now they're digging down through the netting to get to their nuts in my the, thing. I wish I could speak peace with them. I wish we could have a squirrel meeting, you know, and we could do some bargaining. Hey, I'll, 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 I'll dig out all your nuts. I'll put them over here. You guys go get them. You stay out of my garden. but they won't. And so God's saying, if they had just come to me and made peace, but they won't. The wicked of the world will not make peace with God. They're without excuse. Since the beginning of time, God's invisible qualities have been seen in nature and all he created. Romans, the book of Romans. (sighs) They have no excuse, but they will not make peace. He says, if they would just have made peace with me. to have God as your enemy is a terrible thing. But to have him as your savior is delightful. So once Leviathan is defeated, and God is constantly tending his vineyard, for eternity, I might add, the whole world is going to be full of his fruitfulness. You know, we we get glimpses of it today. We see things in the world that this is great. This is this is what it might be like in the whole world. And then we obviously there's a whole lot of chaos in the world. Most of it created by man. But once Leviathan is, is defeated, fruitfulness will happen. We we see this again going to Revelation Revelation 22. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what it's going to be like when Leviathan, when chaos is destroyed. We're going to see, coming up here in verses 7 through 11, we're going to see that God is going to discipline his people. We have to keep in mind that Isaiah wrote these words about the time right before the As- Assyrians were attacking, right, and long before the Babylonians um, took everybody into exile. They weren't even a world power at this point. But when the people think about this, when the people go into, when they do go into exile, they're going to be kind of confused. I mean, we're God's chosen people. Why is this happening? We we look at ourselves. We say, well, you know, we're the United States. We're 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 special. And yet here we are. We're in the midst of high inflation. We're we're spending money left and right, sending money for a war on the other side of the world that we should never be involved in anyways. We have sex trafficking and abductions happening. Stores are just being robbed because, you know, if you don't... If you you, you rob for less than $1,000, why should we put you in jail so everybody goes out and robs less than $1,000? There's places that you can't walk down the street without being harassed. But the people of, of Judah must have been rather confused because they're going through a very difficult time. If we look at verse 7 of Isaiah 27, this is what it says. It says, Has He struck them as He struck those who struck them? No, I know. Has He struck them as... As he struck those who struck, them. has he done the same thing to them as he did to the people, the, the unbelievers? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contend with me. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is a solitary, a, habita- a habitation deserted and forsaken. Like the wilderness, there the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When the boughs are dry, where they are broken, women come and make fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. God is going to punish his people. He's going to punish them. It's not going to be like it is for the non-believers. He's not going to utterly destroy those people that are faithful. But his whole point in doing it is to clear out idolatry. All All the ashram poles are torn down. All of the altars are crushed. He's trying to eliminate idolatry and wickedness. He, he does that to us today. Why do we go through trials? God is winnowing you. Yesterday, I, I, I'm almost done sorting through all my seeds and getting them organized. I have a lot of seeds that I kept from the year before. I just picked a bunch of spinach seeds. So, what do I do? I crush them up and I take them in a frisbee and I go, listen, I, I blow on it and all the chaff flies away and I'm left with just the seed. See, when you and I go through trials, that's what God's doing. He's trying to get rid of the chaff. But what do we do? We hang on to it. We grab it. I I want it. I want to hold on to it. So what do I have to do when the seed hangs on to the chaff? I take the seed and I crush it in my hands. And I force the chaff to get away from it. So I can blow it away. That's what God does to us. He he doesn't crush us to where we die. He gives us enough trials so that we can turn to Him and say, I I can't do this by myself. I need you. I'm sorry. What do I I need to learn from this? What What did I do wrong? If I didn't do anything wrong, what are you trying to show me? Help me to learn from this. In our small group this last week, we talked about Paul praying for The people. Paul is praying for the church, but he never prays once that they would not go through persecution. He prays that they would be strong. He doesn't pray that God would eliminate, that God would give them better, you know, the the rulers of them would be better rulers, and more godly people. No. Grant, we need to pray for our rulers. But he prayed that they would be strong, that God would give them strength, that they would know God better. That's why we go through trials. We get this idea of what it's like um, exile would be like in Lamentations. It says, "How lonely sits the city that was full of people, was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the princes, provinces, has become a slave." Israel's going to be struck. We're going to be struck. But God has measured out. Her punishment. God has measured out our punishment. He's only going to punish us to the point he knows we're going to break, let go of the chaff, allow him to blow it out of our lives. It may seem severe. It does seem severe at times. But God always provides for a remnant to endure the punishment and come out refined as gold through fire. And once that happens, then we get a gathering. Verse 12. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. That's the whole idea of threshing. Knocking the grains off. Getting the grain and the stalk and the chaff separated. He'll thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. God's going to thresh out the wheat. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. A trumpet's going to be blown. God's going to call his people to his holy mountain to worship and praise him. Again, we go to Paul's writing in Thessalonians, this time to get an image of this. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. They were concerned about those who had died. And then they were concerned about themselves that they had missed the resurrection. For this we declare to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We won't go before they do. For the Lord Himself would descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet... Of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with him, them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See what we're gonna see is we're seeing the correlation between what was happening in Isaiah, what Paul says is gonna happen, and what John saw happening was gonna happen. We have Jesus' gospel here in Isaiah. Who is it that defeats Leviathan? Who defeats him? It's Jesus. We go to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Basically saying, because we are human, Christ came as a human. Fully God, fully human. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, the dragon, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation which is the fact that he paid the price for us that's propitiation he stood in our place for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It is Jesus who destroys Satan. By his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated Leviathan. He defeated chaos. He defeated Satan. I believe that if we, we see in Scripture, we see the, the, uh, the image of Satan being thrown out of heaven. Yeah, that's when it happened. When Christ was crucified, when Christ was crucified, Satan is sent out of heaven. Can no longer accuse the brothers, the believers. Each victory, each each soul that turns to Christ and believes the good news is increasing God's kingdom, shrinks Satan's kingdom. Chaos is being pushed back by every person that we share the gospel with. When they believe in Christ, we're pushing back chaos. In the process, Satan gets frustrated. He cannot stop the elect from coming to faith in Christ. He'll try everything he can. He will not defeat us. So while we struggle in our world, while while things don't always go the way we want, while we are being refined by fire so that the dross is removed, the dross is, if you take gold and you heat it to a high level, the dirt, the, the garbage comes to the top and it gets scraped off and you have pure gold. That's what God is doing to us. That's why we're here. It's being removed from our lives. And we hold tight to the promise that in the end, Christ is going to be victorious over chaos, over Leviathan. Paul again says in Second in, in Thessalonians, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They thought that the, the resurrection had already happened and, and that God had already come. Let no one deceive you, For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. I think we're in the rebellion. The church is rebelling against God. Overall. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, Leviathan, the dragon. Well, not the dragon, the dragon's main henchman, the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself against Every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul says, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is restraining him. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. See, remember, God says, if they had just made peace with me, but they refuse it. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, what are we to do? We know this is coming. We know we're in trials. We know it's not going to. Life is not going to be a bed of roses. Life is not going to get any easier. In fact, I think it's going to get. Being a believer is going to get even more difficult in the days to come. but we must remember to stand firm. Again, going to what Paul says in Second Thessalonians. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Hold to the truths of the gospel you need to know them, because there's a lot of falsehood out there. But stick to the traditions that were taught us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, which is the Bible, God's word. He says, now, may our Lord Jesus himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort and. Your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Chaos is reigning on this world right now. Leviathan is still, (laughs) still turning the waters. But the day is coming when he'll be destroyed. The day is coming when all chaos will end. A day is coming when peace will reign, when the vine will be fruitful. We won't have to, we won't have to tend it anymore because God will be tending it. We won't have to be guarded. We won't have to pull weeds. We won't have to fight off the possums or the squirrels or the birds because God will take care of them. But for now, we need to stand firm. Understand that trials will come. But God is God is winnowing us. He's, he's strengthening us for the days to come, and we need to encourage each other's each other with those words that it's going to be okay. God's got this. He's going to take care of it. We just have to wait and be patient, and stand firm in God's word, and wait for that day when that trumpet blows. Let's pray.